to look at this book. And you're thinking, why are we looking at this prophecy of Habakkuk some 2,600 years ago? Well, the reason is it has so much to say for us today is because human nature does not change. And you're going to see exactly what happened 2,600 years ago and how they're dealing with so many things going on. You know, I think you're going to find that to relate today as well. And I want to talk to you today about the topic of trust and obey from this wonderful prophecy of Habakkuk. Now, I got to tell you, I got this history with the book of Habakkuk. Apparently, when I was really young, memorizing the books of the Bible, when I would get to this book of the Bible, I would call it tobacco. <laughs> and I'd say tobacco on one side of the family. When I got to the other side of the family, I would say tobacco. <laughs> and this was always the run. Now, I don't remember doing this, but as I got older, they, my grandparents would have me say the books of the Bible. And if I said Habakkuk, they were disappointed. They wanted me to say tobacco or tobacco. Now... Why is that? Well, on my Papa Brizendine side, they pronounce tobacco, tobacco, all right? On my Papa Clayton side, they pronounce tobacco, tobacky. A mile apart from each other, but that's how they pronounced it. So I grew up thinking about Habakkuk and pronounced it that way. So today I want us to look at tobacco one, two, and three, all right? Or tobacco if my other side of the family's watching as well. But here's the setting of this, of this story of this good, righteous man. He lives in a time of trusting and obeying God that's very difficult. Now, here's the situation. He's in the town of Jerusalem, which is the capital city. It's around the 600s. We're just a few years away from Judah going into captivity for 50 years. And here he is, the king at the time is the evil king Jehoiakim. Now, if you know anything about the history of Judah, King Josiah was Jehoiakim's dad. He was the one who had found the law and caused great revival to happen throughout the land of Judah during his time. There's hope. The people have returned back to the Lord. And then his son comes along and becomes the king and he's evil. How evil is he during this time? Well, he has the prophets come read the prophecies to him. And if he didn't like it, he would tear it up and throw it in the fire to be burned. And so he'd go through the word of God and the prophecies he didn't like. He would rip it up and throw it into the fire to be burned. Very evil man. And not only was he evil, the priesthood was corrupted and all these things, everywhere he looked, it looked like sin was winning and overwhelming everything. He lives at the same time as Jeremiah and Zephaniah. And so these three prophets are the ones trying to tell Judah, you are in a heap of trouble. You need to repent or what happened to your sister Israel's kingdom will happen to you. You will be marched into captivity. And so Jeremiah and Zephaniah and all of them are prophesying about Babylon. Babylon's on the way. God's going to use Babylon to come against Judah if you don't repent. Well, well, how bad was it? Jeremiah 8, verse 12. Same period of time as Habakkuk. They should be ashamed of their detestable practices. Look at the next phrase. But they have what? No shame. They don't even blush. Tell me that's not relevant for today. They, they have all these despicable practices that they're going through. We'll see some of them in a little bit. They have no shame about it. They don't even blush. 
So you have the sinful nation, the sin that just seems to keep marching forward. And on top of that, Habakkuk says in chapter 3 that the crops are failing. There's no figs. There's no olives. Their livestock is decimated, and so they are in poverty. And so everything is falling apart. So Habakkuk, as this righteous and good man, who truly wants to see the people repent, wants to do something about it, is going to God over a period of a couple of years here in Habakkuk. And he's talking to God, and all through these different chapters, these three chapters that happened over a few years, here's the theme that I got out of it. Trust and obey. You have to trust and obey. If you get one application out of the book of Habakkuk that you never remember, all right, Remember this one, no matter what, always trust and obey. You have to trust and obey, Habakkuk says, when nothing makes sense. When nothing makes sense. He, he goes to God in prayer in the very first chapter, when nothing makes sense, and he finds out that heaven seems silent. You know, we read the verse just earlier about crying to the God and he hears your prayers and he answers you. Now here's Habakkuk, who's going to do this here in verse 1 and 2 of this chapter. How long, Lord, must I call for help? There's a cry for help there. But you do not listen. Or cry out to you violence, but you do not say. So he calls out in prayer for help. And that second word is stronger. It's a shouting. It's a crying out. It's like those expressions, shaking your fist at heaven. Heaven is silent. He's not hearing anything back. And so we have to learn to trust and obey when nothing makes sense, when heaven seems silent, and when it seems like sin is winning. When it seems like sin is winning and righteousness is losing. Habakkuk continues in verse 3. Why do you make me look at the injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Sin is winning. He continues in verse 4. The law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. Sound familiar? The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is what? Perverted. Heaven's silent. Sin is winning. And then we have to trust to obey when nothing makes sense, when our explanations fail. When our explanations fail, when we try to explain things, well, this is the reason why this is happening. Or God is working this way. This is what God has in mind when he's doing these things. Now, God had revealed to Habakkuk that the way he was going to deal with Judah and her sins was to send the most evil empire in existence to bring it down. And that absolutely made no sense to Habakkuk, why would you bring Babylon, who's far worse than us, right, to destroy us and bring us down? The explanation fails him. It doesn't make sense to him. So he cries out in 12 and 13, Lord, are you not everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you'll never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent, heaven silent, while the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? You see, 
When things don't make sense, we want explanations, don't we? How do you explain that to me? What's the explanation? And so in our mindset, we, we are convinced, well, science can give us the answer. Or math is able to provide us the explanation. Or if we get the history, learn the history of it, surely we can get the explanations. But, but I'm here to tell you, expectations from science often will fail you. I'm here to tell you, oftentimes mathematical formulas don't always work. And history, uh, history is rewritten and revised over and over and over again. It fails us. I think about one time when this guy asked me, if you can prove to me how God created the earth, then I will believe. And I said, you've asked the wrong person. I'm trying to figure out how a brown cow that eats green grass, can produce white milk and yellow butter. I can't even figure that out. Don't ask me about how God created the heaven and prove it to you. And I hear that so oftentimes. Well, if you can just prove this to me, if you can just answer this question, may I tell you something? Faith does not rest on our explanations. Faith rests on the promises of God, not our explanations about God. I'm not anti-education. I'm not anti-intellectual. But I'm telling you, the devil works in a powerful way. Well, if you can answer this question, you know, uh, if, if you can just explain this to me, you'll have faith. No, you won't. It'll probably create further doubt. Faith rests on the promises of God. Not on our explanations about God. I think about science in the first century. Do you think the science in the first century is different from the science of the 21st century? Has it changed any? I think about mathematics in the first century. And I think about mathematics today in the 21st century. Has mathematics changed any since the first century? I think about the history and philosophy of the first century. Has the history and philosophy of the first century changed in the 21st century? Absolutely. Absolutely changed. I can go back to the Word of God in the New Testament in the first century. I can go to the Word of God today in the 21st century. Has it changed? Not one dot. Not one T. It's the same today because truth never changes. My faith rests on the promises of God, not the explanations about our God. There have been thousands of pages that I've read and others that I've not read that attempt to try to explain to us how God works. And when you're reading in this theory, it sounds pretty good. But when you find yourself in the crisis and you try to use those explanations, how many times you found out it just doesn't seem that to make sense. Are you with me? And I think about that. Now look, look, here's what God says about this, all right? Now, get ready, verse 5. God says, I'm going to do something in your days that you will not believe even if I told you. Now, wait a minute. Tell me. Give me a shot, right? <laughs> I mean, you're silent. <clears throat> Sin seems to be winning. Explanations are failing. And God says, I would love to give you an explanation, but even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, isn't that something? 
It's beyond my comprehension. It's beyond my understanding. I like what Jesus said on one time in John 16, verse 12. I have so much more to tell you, but it would be more than you could understand. Oh, come on, Jesus, tell me some more. I want, explain this to me. Gee, I'd love to. I mean, you, you never understand it. Wow. See? So what do you do when nothing makes sense? You trust and obey. Faith is believing in the promises of God. Someone has done this research many, many times. They've gone back to all the promises of God in the Bible and where they've been fulfilled, and they've seen that God has fulfilled every promise that he's ever made. And based upon that, if God has fulfilled those promises all along the way, the ones that are still remaining, you can rest your faith on those promises will be fulfilled as well. Amen? And I, I just love that. Now notice the Bible says faith is the victory that overcomes what? The world. Faith is the victory, not intellectualism, not emotionalism, not education. It's not faith in government. It's not faith in laws. It's not faith in education. It's not faith in human goodness. It's faith in God. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And they, we need to have that faith when it makes no sense, when explanations fail us. In fact, God said in Isaiah, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways and thoughts above yours. And you say, well, that's just so difficult. <clears throat> I mean, how can you trust and obey when heaven seems silent and sin is winning and the explanations are failing us? That's so difficult. It was for Jesus too, wasn't it? You think about the ministry of Jesus, those first three years, authority in his teaching, authority over demons and disease, authority over the lame, the blind, the hearing, the authority over physical conditions, the authority over nature, everything Jesus did, every prayer that was uttered was successful, wasn't it? Everything's working. God from heaven speaks. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Are you with me? And then you get to the garden, the night before the cross. And in the garden, heaven goes silent. God, I want your will to be done, but let this cup pass from me. Heaven is what? Silent. On the cross, on the cross, heaven is silent. My God, my God, where are you? You've forsaken me. Sin is winning, the evil that arrests the righteous one who knew no sin. To be suffering on our account, the whips, the scourges, the thorn of crowns, the mocking, the abuse. Sin's winning. And on the cross, the nails. And with every breath that Jesus takes, darkness is upon the face of the earth, right? Satan's winning. Satan's cheering, right? No explanation. If he's the son of man, why don't you come down? If you're the almighty one, if you're the one that we've been waiting for, why don't you come down? Why doesn't he come down? What do the disciples do? All run, except for John. All hide. No explanation. Jesus had given explanation after explanation over the months about here's what's going to happen. Here's how you have to plan for it. Be prepared for it. And when they get in the middle of it, the explanations fade away. Nothing works. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, right? 
And he's now raised. It's so obvious he's been raised from the dead. What do the people do? The Greeks look at the cross and to them, foolishness. And to the Jews, stumbling block. The explanations of the cross fail them as well. You see, we got to trust and obey. And this is what Habakkuk is telling us here. You trust and obey when heaven is silent. You trust and obey when sin is winning. You trust and obey even when the explanations don't make sense. Put your faith in the promises of God and rest it upon that. Well, a little bit later, Habakkuk has another moment in his life. And it's found in Habakkuk chapter 2. And we find out you trust and obey by guarding the truth. By guarding the truth, Habakkuk 2 verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look and see what he says to me and what answer I am to give to these complaints. You sometimes got to trust and obey just by, just by guarding the truth. You know what a rampart is? A defensive posture, a defensive wall. He's standing on the defensive wall. Or the ramparts we watch that were so gallantly streaming from the Star Spangled Banner. It's a position of defense. He's on the watch. He's looking. He's guarding. He's in a position here as the evil and the sin is multiplying. As the sin is becoming to un envelope all parts and engulf all parts of Judean society and religion. You know what Habakkuk says? I'm going to trust and obey. I'm going to stand on that wall of defense. I'm going to look. I'm going to keep looking for God to work. I'm going to trust and obey in him. And so he's standing there. And so God talks to him now. You know how you guard the truth, God says? With my scripture. With my scripture. Look in verse 3 of Habakkuk 2. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. He's talking about the word of God there. Though it linger, may not look like it's working. Wait for it. It will certain happen in due time and will not be delayed. God's word never fails. How do you guard truth in a society that seems to be overwhelmed by sin and the defensive wall may be overrun by the sin? You stand on the watch, the station. You stand on the word of God. You stand as a guardian of the truth and you do it with scripture. Habakkuk is told by God also you do it by walking in faith. Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous will live by what? You got to live it out. The righteous will live by faith. Do you know that's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament? The righteous shall live by faith. You guard the truth with Scripture by walking in faith. And the third way that you guard the truth is you've got to proclaim that the woe is coming. Now, woe, W-O-E, is different than the woe, W-H-O-A, right? The woe, W-O-E, is the judgment. The W-H-O-A, woe, is stop it. If you want the woe of judgment to, to no longer happen, you got to do the woe, the W-H-O-A, to stop doing what you're doing. Now, in the Bible, one woe is really bad. A woe-woe is really, really bad. But a woe-woe-woe, I mean, that's the end, all right? And in Revelation 8, you got the woe-woe-woe, all right? Now, in Habakkuk here, there's these woes. The woe is coming in Habakkuk 2, 6 through 9. Man, you got to proclaim it. As sin is overwhelming, you got to stand up as a soldier of Christ. 
You have to stand up for the truth in the scripture. Don't be ashamed of the scripture. You have to walk the walk and you have to pronounce the woe. And Habakkuk does it. Woe to him. He gives a series of five woes. Woe to those who have been materially corrupted. Woe to those of you who think that you can find strength and joy in your material possessions. Woe to you who think that the legal system is going to be able to save you. Your legal system is corrupt. You're not going to get the justice you want. Woe to you who are depending upon your morals. The morals of the society are totally corrupt. Remember, they're not even blushing anymore. And not only that, the spiritual condition where you turn to find spiritual strength within the family of God during that time, there is spiritual corruption. Woe to those who look for material gains for strength or the legal system for justice or the morals to make them morally good and right. And to those who think that religion that's not faithful to God, that's not, that has not been compromised, that it will be able to help them because religion has been compromised and there's spiritual corruption. You got to guard the truth. You see, sin is overwhelmed. See it? Every aspect of that society, of that nation, sin is winning, isn't it? It's winning in the material mindset. It's winning in the legal system of justice. It's winning in the morals. And it's winning in the spiritual corruption of God's people. Tell me that doesn't seem a little bit familiar today. And what do you do to guard the truth during that time? Woe. The woe is coming. We got to tell the warning. Amen? Okay. I know there's a few of you here. But I can at least hear a couple amens that one. That's a tough one, I know. The woe is coming, so we got to woe it, right? Stop it. Right? So what does it say in Habakkuk 2? The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will come on your glory. How do you guard the truth? With Scripture. Walking in faith, pronouncing the woe is coming, but always remember, always remember, our God reigns. Our God reigns. In the doom and gloom, depression of the info entertainment news time, everybody procrastinates everything. Oh, it'll never be the same. And everybody's just all in despair. How the world's going. Would you just please remember you're a guardian on the wall and you are to proclaim our God reigns. And that's what Habakkuk does this. Habakkuk 2. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before you. Heaven may seem silent to you. It may seem like sin is winning. There's no consequences to it, right? And your explanations we give may fail. But truth, stand on the truth in the scriptures, walking by faith, understanding that the woe is there, but the reason why you have hope is because our God reigns. He's in his holy temple. One other thought. I keep on going. But this last one from Tobacco chapter 3. All right? <laughs> A little bit of time goes on. Habakkuk now looks. And you see his determination to trust and obey. Now you've had Jehoiakim almost on the verge of being taken in captivity to be killed on the exile. And the next one in line will be killed as well. Into exile rather. 
And all these deportations, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel, so many of these people have been removed out of Jerusalem, have been sent off to Babylon. But here's Habakkuk still here. In Jerusalem, he's trusting and obeying when it didn't make sense, when everyone, by guarding the truth, he's standing guard, just like Jeremiah will do in Zephaniah. And he also trusts and obeyed by drawing nearer to God. He didn't draw away from God. He drew closer to him. So in chapter 3, you have this prayer and a song. And that should say Habakkuk 3, verse 1. That's the wrong, wrong verse in there. A prayer and a song of Habakkuk the prophet. He drew near to God. How do you draw near to God? Pray more. Worry less. How do you draw near to God? By praising him in song. You see that Hebrew word there, shiganoff? That is a musical term. He's telling the, the musical director, listen, here's the lyrics of this that I've written, but I want you to put it to music. And so Habakkuk trusts and obey God by going to him in prayer and like what we're all doing here today, going before God in praise and in worship. And so look how he draws near to God, by repeating the greatness of God. By repeating the greatness of God, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. We draw near to God by asking God to repeat his greatness. We talk about his greatness. We tell of his greatness. We pray about his greatness. We sing of his greatness. And we have this expectation, God, as you showed your greatness in the past, would you show and repeat your greatness today? I'm drawing near to you. Amen? Second thing you weigh in which you draw near to God is by remembering his glory. And Habakkuk says, what a glory it is. Look in verse 3 and 4. God's glory covers the heavens and his praise fills the earth. His splendor is like the sunrise. Rays flash from his hand where his power hides. So you repeat his greatness. You expect his greatness to show up. You remember his glory. He's the Lord his holy presence. Habakkuk says, may the knowledge and the glory of God fill the whole earth. Fill the whole earth. And the third thing we do, we're back to that very first verse we saw as we started, is to learn to rejoice in the Lord for the strength that he gives you. When you draw near to God, that's where you find the strength. Now earlier I referred to chapter 3, 17 through 18, about where they found themselves. The sin is in, in plunged, in, the, the nation's plunged in sin. The crops aren't growing. The livestock's failing. So everything's falling apart and it's gotten worse. This is where the condition of the nation is. Habakkuk sees it. He sees how the woe has come upon all those who've trusted in these things for their strength, for their prosperity. Now notice, I love this. Here it is. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Though the fig tree does not bud. Though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crops fail and the field produces no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Why? Because the sovereign Lord is my strength. When the crops fail, material possessions fail, when the law fails, when the government fails, when all of our medicine people can't figure it out, when everything seems to be failing, 
Make sure that your total trust and obedience is in God. God is my strength, even though everything else may fall apart. And that's why the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. See, I told you this book was relevant, right? I hope it gives you the desire to go back and read it even more. Go back and look at the notes. What a timely message for the day in which we find ourselves. I hope this message has encouraged you today in your daily walk with your Lord and Jesus Christ. If you're watching online with us today and you need to respond in any way, please write to the email address that's on the screen. And I forgot to put the, oh, the phone numbers up there as well. So you can email or write, okay? Email or call. Email and writing are the same thing, I think. Although I'm we won't get into that right now. So email it or phone us. We'd love to hear from you, help you any way we can. If you're here this morning and you'd like to share a spiritual need, one of our elders will meet you in the front as we sing this next song.